Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Psalm 51, as well as 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Over four weeks, starting last week, uh, a series of pastors are preaching out of Psalms, Psalms that impact our lives. Let's uh, ask God to guide our time. Father God, we ask that you would just give us your wisdom, your guidance. We would take your word and you would impart it to our hearts. Father, help us to know what you say, to believe what you say, and to live it out. Transform us, equip us, even gently reprove us if necessary. Lord, help us to be more and more like you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Some of you have heard the name Robert Robinson. He was from the 1700s. It was his poem that was used in Come Thou Fount. You remember a very famous phrase from Come Thou Fount. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Robert Robertson. It's kind of hard to do, by the way, because the first part that I'm going to tell you is historical fact, and the last part we have historians taking several different views, so I'll tell you the one that is most normative. Robert Robertson grew up in England. His parents had a very unfortunate marriage. They fought a lot, and before he was a teenager, Robert's father left the home. He had racked up a huge amount of debt. He abandoned the family. And actually, soon after that, he died. Robert's mother worked several different jobs in order to provide for Robert and his siblings. And it allowed him to stay in school until he was 13. At age 13, his mother signed him up for a seven-year apprenticeship with a master barber in a far-off city. Now, technically... The master barber was walking, watching over Robert Robertson, but in reality, he was on his own as a 13-year-old, and he made a lot of bad choices. He got into a group of, of young thugs. One particular night, they thought for kicks and laughs, they would go to the Tabernacle Church. They would go there and mock the preacher, who on this particular night was evangelist George Whitfield. So they went there to laugh, to mock, to cause trouble. But George Whitfield preached on judgment. He preached on damnation. He preached on the soul and the need to give one's life to Jesus Christ. And Robert Robertson found himself attracted to what was said. He found his heart feeling the need to know Christ. And for the next three years, he struggled. He struggled with the desire to sin and his desire to know Christ. And eventually he gave his life to Christ. And rather than continuing in this path towards becoming a barber, he became a pastor. He became a pastor of a local church. It had 30 people and over the next several decades, it grew to about 800 people that called that church home. And he had influence on probably another 1,000 people in surrounding villages. And this is where the account gets a little divergent, depending on the historian. It is clear that he met a man named Joseph Priestley, who was a well-known Unitarian. Now, as you know, Unitarians deny the deity, the godness of Jesus Christ. And without knowing Christ, 
You cannot be washed. You cannot be quenched. You cannot be redeemed. There is no atonement. There is no forgiveness. There is no eternal life with God. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, everyone agrees that he met Joseph Priestley. We're just not sure how much impact Joseph had in his life. Did Robert Robertson deny the deity of Christ? We're not sure. I would say not likely. But it is clear that he began to wander a little bit. He began to pursue sins. He gave up the pastorate. Even though his wife and he had had 12 kids, he kind of wandered from the faith and became less of the dad and husband that he ought to be. On one particular Sunday, he was heading out to the country. I'm not sure exactly what he was doing, but he was walking, and he thought, you know, it'd be nice to have a cottage or carriage ride. And he could hear the clop, 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 clop of a carriage coming behind him. Those were the taxis in those days. So he turned around, hoping that it was empty, but it wasn't. There was a young gal, clearly dressed so that she was going to church. She was wearing her finest, and in those days when a carriage had a person in, you didn't stop it. But she stopped, realizing he wanted a carriage ride, and she turned to the carriage master and said, go ahead, we'll share the, car- the carriage together. And she turned to Robert Robertson and said, look, you look like you're probably going to church. Are you going to church today? And he was about to say, no, just go on by. And the Holy Spirit was working on his heart. And he replied, much to his own surprise, well, well, yes, I, I guess I am going to church. And he got in the carriage. And as they began to ride, they introduced themselves one to another. And she heard his name, Robert Robertson. And she seemed surprised. A flicker of light in her eyes. And she said, well, that's interesting I have this book of poetry by a man named, and he didn't even finish before he said, yeah, that's mine. I wrote those poems. Wow, she said. I'm in a carriage with a famous poet writer. He politely asked if he could see the book. He scanned it and opened up, and there he read the words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And it penetrated his heart. The Spirit was drawing him back. And this young gal could see that there was something wrong. And she said, Oh, are you that man? Are you the man that's been prone to wander? And he admitted that he had. And she said, Well, you need to agree with God, you need to confess. And the power of God's spirit, you need to turn, you need to repent. And even then there, he confessed and he repented. And God began to transform his life. That's Psalm 51. That's David's psalm. That's David's life. Psalm 51 is about a man who is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. He started well. He will finish well, but in between there was this wandering, and Psalm 51 is the response to that wandering. Now, historically, the psalm really picks up in 2 Samuel 11. So I want to read verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to do battle, David sent Joab, that is his general, 
and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Picture the scene. David did start very well. As a young boy, the shepherd of the family, God empowered him to protect the flock from the, from the bear and the lion. As a young boy, when his nation was under attack by the Philistines, the sea people, the seven nation Philistines, nobody would face their, their unvanquished giant, Goliath. But David, empowered by God's spirit, took out Goliath. You remember in 1 Samuel 17, 8, the young gals of Jerusalem, they created a little song, a ditty. Saul, who was then the reigning king, Saul has killed his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands, he was a hero, but that was then. Since then, he's become the king, and for a while he served well as a king, but then uh, and he got a little bored, a little tired. And the text says it was the time of year when he was to go out to defend Jerusalem against invading nations. It was the time of year when he was to go out to lead the army to protect his people. But instead of going out, he sent Joab. He said, you go do the work. I'm going to stay back. And it was a muggy night. If you've been to Hezekiah's tunnel, you know exactly the location. Hezekiah's tunnel is where you get out of your clothes and you put on your bathing suit and a shirt and you go into the tunnel that Hezekiah had dug to bring the water into Jerusalem. And where you are as you look, that's, that's David's palace. And you remember there's a deep valley and then there's a number of houses. And to this day, you can see on top of the rooftops. In fact, you can actually see into the windows. That was David's palace. That's what it was 3,000 years ago. It's still that way today. And it was a muggy night, and David was out on the palace porch, and he's looking down, and he sees the silhouetted body of a woman. Immediately, he should have ushered up an SOS prayer, said, "Guard, God, guard my eyes, guard my mind. Help me to think on things that are lovely and right and true and beautiful. But instead he looked again and he gawked. Eventually he sent for this woman. I know exactly what happened. When she walked in to his bed chambers, he knew her. She was Bathsheba. I know he knows her because her husband is Uriah. Long before David was a king, when he was running for his life, fleeing for his life from Saul, he had some bodyguards, some secret service. You know who one of them was? Uriah. Uriah was a man who had protected his sick, who had, his six, who had saved his bacon, who had protected him through thick and thin, who had risked his life. This is a man that could have died protecting David and probably saved David's life on multiple occasions. That's Uriah. This is his wife, Bathsheba. So when she enters the bed chambers, David knows who she is. She is the wife of the man who has protected him for several decades. But David has no shame. He has no morals. He has no ethics at this point. He's been bored, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to lead the God I love. And he sleeps with Bathsheba. And then she goes back home and maybe a month or two passes. 
The army is still out protecting Jerusalem, but she's pregnant, and it's clear that it's not Uriah's child. He hasn't been home. So Bathsheba sends word to David, hey, I'm pregnant. And David realizes, hey, this could really blow up. This could be on like the front page of the National Enquirer. I've got to really clean this mess up. So he sends a memo to the general, Joab, who's doing the job that David should be doing. And he says, I want a weekend pass for Uriah. Send him home, a little R&R. David thinks he'll come home, he'll delight with his wife. Then he'll go back to the front when the child is born. He'll think it's a little premature, but it's his child. He'll know nothing about what has taken place. But you remember, Uriah is a man of integrity. He's not going to delight with his wife while his own men are on the front lines. So he sleeps on the porch. David's plan is foiled. So he hatches plan number two. He invites Uriah to a cocktail party. He tells his men, hey, every time he takes a sip from his chalice, fill that puppy back up. He tells all of the individuals in the party, keep toasting. I don't care what you toast. Keep toasting. So he takes a sip and you fill it up. He takes a sip and he fills it up. And before the night is over, Uriah's hammered. Now his, his concentration will be broken. His patriotism will be lessened. He'll go home. He'll delight with his wife. But he doesn't. He sleeps on the front porch. David is foiled again. So David sends him back to the front lines. He tells the general Joab, make Uriah the point of the spear of the attack. Go deep into enemy territory. Allow the fighting to be fierce. And when it's really fierce, I want you to back everybody up, leaving the tip, leaving Uriah alone. And Uriah is murdered. And then David, magnanimously, he, he sweeps in, oh, this poor widow who is pregnant with Uriah's child. Somebody's got to care for them. And so publicly, David marries Bathsheba. And you remember that it's a year. It's a year where his devotions go nowhere. His prayers are flat. A year where he would rather be anywhere than in God's temple. We know this is true. Why? Because we've been there. I've been there. You've probably been there. We're headlong into sin. We're not confessing. We're not repenting. We offer lip service to the Lord in prayer. Our devotions, if we even have them, are minimized. We can't stand church. Our mind is wandering. We're angry at what's being said because God is using it to convict our hearts because we're prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, and God is drawing us back. And eventually, after almost a year, the prophet Nathan comes and confronts David with his sin. And Psalm 51 is David's confession. Let's look at Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That's how David begins. He understands that he can't earn his way out of sin. He can't atone for his own sin. It's 
his good works outweighing his bad, or it's not his baptism, it's not his confirmation, it's not his communion. He can't do it. He needs God's mercy. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. It's an accounting term. He said, the accountant has looked at my sin. I've come up wanting. I have a debt I cannot repay. I'm in the red. I need to be in the black. I can't get in the black. Have mercy on me, O God. Verse 2, wash me, kabats, thoroughly from my iniquity. Maybe you've seen this in a third world country. You go down to a river. And there's some women, occasionally a man, and they are pummeling the laundry. They're beating the dirty laundry against the rocks, against the water, trying to clean out all the impurities, the filth, the muck of the, the dusty clothes, the dirty clothes, the smelly clothes. David says, that's me, kabosh, wash me. God, only you can do that. And cleanse me, tahar, from my sin. It's an industrial term. It's used in the smelting, the burning off of impurities from molten metal. David is really confessing here. He said, my sin I cannot do anything about. Have mercy on me. Wash me. Burn off the iniquities. I need you, God, to cleanse me. He's not making excuses. The devil didn't make me do it. He's not saying, well, you know, it's what everybody believes or what everyone is doing. He says, no, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against you. He says in verse 14, deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God. In other words, David understands that under Levitical law, murder is a capital offense. May I say this? Every sin is an eternal capital offense. Every sin. A lie is an eternal capital offense. Listening to political correctness rather than being controlled by God's word, it's a capital eternal offense. Lying, drunkenness, adultery, lust, not putting on the fruit of the Spirit, they are all eternal capital offenses. We, like David, say, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Then he says in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We read that and we say, really, come on, David. Uriah is six feet under. Bathsheba probably, quite possibly against her will, is pregnant because of you. How can you dare say against you, God, and you only have I sinned? It is possible to sin against another. We see that in Matthew 18, 15, and a few other passages. But David is actually using this in a technical sense. He's saying, God, your word is perfect. And it's your word that I violated. It's your standards, your morality, your ethics. And every time... We choose political correctness over the word of God. We've sinned against God. That's what David's done. He's not denying the fact that he's wronged, he's hurt, he's wounded. He's murdered Uriah. 
He's wronged. He's hurt. He's damaged in, in, in emotional ways. Bathsheba, he's not denying that. He's just using it in a technical sense. He has violated God's perfect law against you and you only. Have I sinned? Then verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying that intimacy in a marriage relationship it is wrong. Of course it's not. Genesis 2.25, the man and the woman were both naked and not ashamed. It took God two chapters to get to intimacy within marriage as a right relationship. He's also not saying that I was conceived out of wedlock. That wasn't true, and it doesn't factor into the text. What he's saying is what Paul says in Romans 5.12. That you, I, we have original sin. We are totally depraved, which means every part of every cell is depraved within us. Because God knows had we been in the Garden of Eden, we would have done exactly what Adam did. As one wag said, Adam ate the apple and our teeth have ached ever since. We are in need of redemption. Not only because of the sins that we commit, but even the sin that's original that we are held accountable for because God knows you, I, would have done nothing different than Adam. I love verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hyssop. It wasn't used medicinally. It was used ceremonially for Hansen's disease, what we call leprosy or Hansen's disease today. 3,000 years ago, it was incurable, short of an intervention by God. And so David is talking about an incurable disease. Sin is an incurable disease except for an intervention by God. Ceremonially, cleanse me with hyssop. Do your work within me, O God. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. It's reminiscent of Isaiah 1.18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they are made like wool. It is an act of God to cleanse us. I love verse 10. Create, bara, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew in me a spirit within me. Only God, baras, creates ex nihilo out of nothing. God, I've sinned against you. God, I've done what you've told me I should not do. I've thought what I should not think. My attitudes have not been what you desire. I've sinned against you, and I can't do anything about it. Look at verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, implication, or I'd do it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, these things you will not despise. David knows, you and I need to know that we have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. 
And there's no good works to outweigh our bad works. There's no things that we can do to atone, to pay for our sin. We'd offer sacrifices, but it won't work. We do X, Y, Z, but it won't atone for our sin. So David goes back and says, create bara, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Rework my heart, wash my heart, burn off, smelt off the impurities. Cleanse me, O God. I love this psalm. David is getting serious with God. Six times he mentions sin, hata. Three times he mentions iniquity. Three other times he mentions transgressions. That's 12 times he gets serious and says, I'm not making excuses. I'm not saying the devil made me do it. I'm not blaming society. I'm not blaming what I'm following with the crowd. I know what I've done. I know what I've said. I know what I've thought. I know what my attitudes are. Wash me, cleanse me, smelt me, create in me a new heart, O God. That's what David says very clearly to the Lord. And friend, maybe that's where some of us are today. Maybe some of us, if we're honest, in this CV-19 time period, we've wandered. Our prayer lives are less than they were. Our times in the Word personally are fewer and far between. We're not really that interested in listening to God's Word being exegeted. In fact, sometimes we're just mad at what's being said because, well, maybe God's convicting us. Maybe that's where some of us are today. And with David, I need to say, have mercy on me, wash me, kabosh, burn off, smelt off the impurities, tahar, get rid of my blood guiltiness for every sin is an eternal sin against God that, that needs God to bara, to create in me a new heart. So when David is confronted by Nathan, he confesses and he repents. But this is something I want to remember. It's been nine months. Nine months where David walked from the Lord Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And God's drawing him back. But the longer David walks in his sin, the more severe the repercussions will be. David promises, or excuse me, God promises to forgive and to cleanse. God never promises to remove the consequences of our sin. A murderer may still go to prison. An adulterer, may lose one's relationship, one's marriage. An embezzler may lose one's reputation, one's job, and serve time. When Nathan came to David, Nathan gave great words in 2 Samuel 12, 13. He said, God has taken away your sin. Praise the Lord. God has taken away your sins. But that's not all that Nathan said. He said, David, the child that is in 
Bathsheba's womb, that child is going to die. And that child did. I love kids. I love children. I love kids. Some of you have lost a child, and my heart goes out to you. I, I don't know that kind of pain. David does. Bathsheba does. I don't grieve for that child. That child never knew the, the difficulty, the pain of living on earth. But the grief for a parent, it's unbelievable. Nathan went on to say, your home life, David, it's never going to be good again. There's consequences for the actions. And so his son, Amnon, raped his daughter, Tamar. Second Samuel chapter 12 and 13. His son, Absalom, murdered his son, Amnon, because Amnon raped Tamar. Later on in 2 Samuel 15, Absalom stole his father's throne and tried to put his father David to death. David's home life was impacted. God promises to forgive, to cleanse, to renew, to restore, to give us a future and a hope, to give us eternal life. But he doesn't promise to always remove all the consequences of our sin. And the longer we walk away, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, the longer we walk away, sometimes the more painful and deep and consequential the discipline of God will be as he brings us back into a temporal right relationship with him. Well, I don't know where we all are today. Some of you have kept short accounts with the Lord. You've daily confessed and repented. Praise God. May your model be a model for all of us. Continue down that path. For others, maybe today is a wake-up call. Maybe God is using me as a Nathan in your life or in mine. And we're saying, Lord... I've been wandering. I need to agree with you. I need to confess. I need to turn from my sin. I need to repent. I'm asking you for mercy. I'm asking you to wash me. I'm asking you to smelt off the impurities. I'm asking you to create a new heart within me. I'd offer sacrifices, but they won't do it. I'm asking you, Lord, to cleanse to be gracious, to be merciful, to wash me anew. David's psalm, Psalm 51, is our psalm. Let's pray. Father God, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Father, we recognize that in us. We see that in us. And we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your cleansing. We ask the, for the empowerment by your spirit to turn from our sin and towards righteousness. Father, create new hearts. Continue to pursue us. Allow us to keep the shortest of short accounts with you. And be merciful to us. We so need it. 
We praise you. We honor you. We worship you. You are so worthy. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.